Hey, this is Paul C. And this is Elisha. Are you curious about life and the world around us? Shit, us too. Join our conversations on life, liberty, and the pursuit of anime and everything in between. So let's get more curious every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We're good. Okay, then. So today we are going to be joined for our first interview episode of the Vicarious Podcast, and we're going to have Dr. Ucka. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so we're gonna we're taking a trip to the UK and we're gonna have some insight on a black female doctor or a woman doctor I'm not sure um, how you'd like to be referred to in that sense but um, I'd feel like we just can go ahead and jump right in if you're ready Hi, hi, I'm Juliet Ucker. Um, I'm a medical doctor in England. I work as a general practitioner in London. And general practice would be the equivalent to your primary care physician. Oh, okay, so you're a primary care physician. Awesome. Yeah. So some examples of, you know, a general practitioner, like some of the things that you would handle, like what are some examples of some of the things that you handle with your patients? Um, we handle their chronic disease management. So we handle people's hypertension, diabetes. Um, We're the first point of call for everything that isn't an emergency. So if you have an urgent problem, then you would be, you should go to the casualty accident and emergency department. But for everything else, your GP should be your first point of call. So we probably see 20% of my patients are probably children. So simple things from their coughs, their colds, their um, sore throats. We do women's health. So we will do women's cervical screening for cervical cancer and all of their problems. We're, we're basically the point of entry into being looked after. And then we refer on to our colleagues in the hospital. That's, that's okay. really interesting. You, you refer to it as cervical cancer. Well, usually we say cervical on this side. So when I heard it, I was like, cervical. Okay. Then. <laughs> um, so would you, uh, I don't know, does England also separate it? You have emergency room, urgent care, and then just a normal general practitioner, or do you guys have it just or emergency room and general practitioner separated? Just two departments. They're separate. So general practice is a specialty in itself. And I guess we're generalists. So we cover everything related to your body from if you've got a skin rash to if you think you may have had a mini stroke. We're the ones who start off all of the investigation for that. If you have an urgent problem, you were in an accident, you broke your arm, you would go to the emergency room and the doctors there are emergency care physicians, most of them that you would see are in trauma and orthopedics, um, but other specialties work from from there. All right, then I just learned something myself. Okay, cool. Same. <laughs> so, Wait, so, sorry, I, let me, I, one more question real quick. So how long have you been in this field? I, I... Um, I have been a general practitioner for about 15 years. Um, I 
graduated from St George's Hospital Medical School in central London and then you do well in my time it was a three-year vocational training scheme so you do you graduate and then you do one year I guess you'd call it as an intern but we call it as a pre-registration house officer and you decide what specialty you want to go into so you do six months of medicine six months of surgery and just learn how to be a doctor because once you graduate from med school you might know how the body works on paper but really not practically so you spend a year on the wards figuring out what you are interested in and then you move on to specialist training from there so my specialist training was in obstetrics and gynecology pediatrics um, just general medicine and psychiatry and then after that you do a year as a guest and apprentice in a general practice and then you have some exams and then you're fully qualified as a general practitioner so I think all in all that's probably five years at med school a year pre-registration and then three years in hospital and then another year working in the field before you're allowed to work by yourself as a general practitioner the dedication to this role. Yes. Um, It's interesting. I I feel like even though this is no comparison, my many binge watching of um, what's that medical show? Grey's Anatomy. Yes. Grey's Anatomy. It's just like the things that you were saying. I was like, oh, I saw that. I I thought that was fake. Okay. So (laughs) There was some truth to some of that. Okay, cool. Um, There's definitely truth to them. I mean, I grew up watching ER back in the day. I don't know if you guys are old enough mm-hmm. to remember George ER. Clooney, right? George yes. Clooney was on there. Yeah, George Clooney, Deezer D, who recently passed away. Um, I watched, I was an ER junkie back in the day when I was 16, 17, 18. Mm-hmm. I mean, in theory, they're kind of like the same shows. They just kind of revamp them over time. Yeah. So do you notice with the many years that you've been in your practice, do you see or what are some of the differences that you see if you're comparing the U.S. healthcare system versus the U.K. healthcare system? Um, I mean, the main difference is that the UK healthcare system is absolutely free at the point of entry. So no one has to pay for anything. So I think that kind of puts a shift on how you access healthcare. Um, Mm. You know, I have Americans that come over on holiday visiting relatives and primary care is absolutely free. So if they are unwell when they come to the UK, they can see Mm. me. They don't have to pay for anything at all. Secondary care. So when you go into hospital, you do have to pay for. But if it's an emergency, you were involved in an accident or something like that, you don't pay. So I think that's the, the biggest oh, difference wow. because everyone has free health care. So everyone should get what they need in theory. It's funny. I um I was reading on a comment section. I forgot I think it was on Twitter possibly. And they were saying you're more, it's cheaper for you to break your arm in the U S and fly to England and get care instead of you getting the care in the U S. Absolutely. 
It's wow. very ridiculous. Yeah, the the US healthcare system is it is it's despicable to be honest with you. It's it it's 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 drowning in capitalism. It's kind of disgusting. Um as someone who has recently been in a a car accident, I was in a head-on collision this past August, and I'm so thankful that I have insurance because had I not just looking at the medical bills because I have um, insurance that I send my bills to and I had to get it itemized and you know see the price without insurance it was thousands of thousands of dollars and it it was ridiculous and I think that happened in all it happened August 25th and I think um, it just took uh, my insurance company a while to process and, and send the information. I had also broken a bone, so I was kind of slow at sending information. And I think maybe by the middle of October, I was getting, um, not October, excuse me, September, I was getting bills, like final notice bills, like, hey, you owe us $900. Um, I also took the 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 ambulance and I really didn't want to because I know how the ambulance you know works in America which is um where my accident was it was literally five minutes away from the hospital that I was treated at and they charged me twelve hundred dollars to ride to ride five miles um so yeah Mm -hmm. it's the whole thing is designed to get money in my opinion. Absolutely. I mean, healthcare is expensive. And I think people in the UK don't necessarily know how much it costs. I mean, an ambulance ride is probably about 500 pounds. Um, mm. So the cost is there. And I know that because it's a system free for all and taxpayers are putting in their money, an example would be to see your general practitioner, the cost of how they've calculated the cost would be something like 37 or 40 pounds. The cost to just present to accident and emergency is about 75 pounds. So you can wow. see that it's weighed up that the vast majority of people should really go in to see their GP because we do a really fantastic job of sorting people's problems and it's cheaper than being in a hospital for it. But I think that... The the UK population don't really know that cost because they don't see that cost. And equally, I know that I had I have a good friend who I went to school with who now lives in New York. She sent me because she's not used to your healthcare system when she was Mm -hmm. pregnant. She said she had her first antenatal scan and she said, hey, on the healthcare bill, it says it's five thousand dollars for the ultrasound scan for a twelve-week mm-hmm. pregnancy. What? I was like, mm-hmm. five thousand dollars? What the yes. heck is that for? An ultrasound scan probably in the UK is about two hundred and fifty, three hundred pounds. I'm thinking this is the real made-up amount of money. I mean, to have a baby, a normal antenatal care in the UK, so from seeing your midwife all the way through to delivering, having a normal mm-hmm. delivery works out at about three or four thousand pounds in total for that nine months worth of care oh yeah absolutely not Um, i think think it's like depending upon uh what type of birth you have here um Mm -hmm. and i've noticed it is especially because in the my current role i work with benefits so people come back when they're a little disgruntled because they're like 
you know, not aside from all of the appointments that you have to have while you're pregnant, but just giving birth alone. Um, I've seen um, some associates, they have to pay like $6,000 just to have the baby. That's not the scans they had to do, the just going in for checkups and you have to do the checkups, you're pregnant, you know? Mm-hmm. Having a baby in America is so expensive and it's mm-hmm. even before the child is born. Yeah. So I, I oh. kind of think, how do people afford that? You know, you li- you're limiting your family or you're not having health care. You're not accessing the health care as you need mm-hmm. to because you're afraid of the cost. Exactly. exactly. Also, for the listeners, by the way, one pound at, as of today, January 30th of recording this, one pound is equal to 1.37 USD. So it's more or less 1.5 of uh, US dollar. So is that a dollar and fifty cents? It's not really a dollar. It's a dollar and thirty-seven cents. But I was just trying to round it up. Um, I'm just trying to simplify it for people who aren't very mathematically inclined. Also known as Paul, (laughs) but so we're clearly not going to be having any children because I don't see myself paying six thousand dollars for what. Oh, I guess you could do a water birth. I, I think water birth would be cheaper, wouldn't it? Well, it, it you still have to go through the process of the the appointments itself. Um and I mean that's why people are encouraged to get health insurance. Um and it just is really dependent upon what type of health insurance you have and how it is set up if it's beneficial for you because even with health insurance in America, um you still may end up paying out of pocket based off of like deductibles and your out-of-pocket max and those types of things. Mm, okay. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's really, yeah. it really difficult for patients if you're going to have yes. to think about all of these things. And then what happens if you have an accident? You know, what happens then mm-hmm. or you have a heart attack or something like that? That That's, you know, going into tens and hundreds of thousands of pounds. How do people afford to pay for that? Exactly. They for don't. something that that wasn't in their control like god forbid you just you know someone gets hit by a car or something like that they don't have insurance and they they get treated and i believe that certain hospitals depending on if they're like private hospitals or not um they have it set up to you know like we will treat you and we may either lessen the cost or we won't charge you for certain things but it's just kind of like i didn't plan for an accident to happen and now i'm several thousand dollars in debt because of something that was out of my control mm-hmm. but do you guys um if you need access to a doctor and you have health care is that quick or is it a slower kind of process because the nhs was kind of set up that you will have access but you might there might be a waiting list so i might refer my patients to see i don't know uh a gastroenterologist specialist because I have stomach problems and it might take eight weeks before they're seen and they I have to monitor yeah because it's I should be looking after them in that time doing any investigations that may need to be done and what I really want the specialist to do is put a camera inside and have a look so there's a delay in the system um so 
some people don't want that delay. So if you have funds or if you have private healthcare through work, then some people will have private insurance on top. But the reality is most people in the UK use their private insurance because they want to speed up the system. They want to have access immediately rather than the delay. So when you say private insurance, is that something that's obtained by the person themselves or that's something that's provided by their their job? It can be either. So some people will have, my husband has private insurance through his job. He doesn't use it because the NHS works perfectly well. He's young, Mm -hmm. but other people will choose to pay like, I don't know, a hundred pounds a month so that they can access private insurance. So if they needed something quickly, they can get it done. Um, And if you have, if, if I, as a general practitioner, think you have cancer and I'm suspicious of that diagnosis, then you will be seen quickly. You'll be seen mm-hmm. within two weeks. You'll be seen by a specialist. But for other things that I may not be too worried about, then you'll wait. Ah, uh, okay. So, if so, is it designed that if someone has private, you know, insurance, that they get their their they're put ahead? Of someone who who does not? No, it's not the same like, queue. It's okay. a different, it's oh, a different okay. system completely. So there's two systems that are running. The vast majority of people use the National Health Service, and then there's a small mm-hmm. private service that runs alongside it. Most of the doctors work within two services. So they will work in, I don't know, London Teaching Hospital, and they'll have their NHS work. And then as a side, mm-hmm. they'll spend some of their time doing private practice. Um, so they will spend, you know, two thirds of the week in the hospital and a third of the week in their private practice um, consulting rooms. And so their time is split, but the actual time for patients is running as two different systems. But it's just so that people can jump the queue if you have extra money to, but it doesn't leave everyone else behind. Ah, uh, okay. That's how the U.S. should be set up. That makes a little more sense, in my opinion. So what are you also uh, NHS directly, or do you also split your time between NHS and privatized? I just work for the NHS. I don't do private general practice. I could if I wanted to, but I don't really... I really believe in the NHS as it is for accessing medicine for all. Um, so I don't choose to do any any private practice. Uh, do you know any differences in the health issues of the black patients you treat in the UK opposed to, uh, like, for example, dealing with um, uh, my family or our family, diabetes, high blood pressure, that usually is a really big deal in the black community in the US. I don't mm-hmm. know, do you still kind of similar issues with the black community or west i don't know do you guys refer to yourself as the black, the black community in england would you say that? yeah they would say the black community um i think everyone is suffering the same problems so you know the black afro-caribbean black african community in the uk have higher rates of diabetes hypertension black people don't so much have heart attacks they seem to have more strokes and heart attacks but it's still the whole cardiovascular system um Mm -hmm. and the issues are the same obesity these are things that all contribute to that so i think my colleagues in america and the uk and in africa and the caribbean we're all struggling with the same issues 
That's interesting. Um, I think because when, when, as far as for like black natives in America, um, a lot of times you see that it is directly those types of um, ailments are contributed through the food they consume. Um, And a lot of times for like older black people, it could just be like, um, like a lot of soul food mm-hmm. and it's like fried foods, it's foods and gravies, you know, putting butter and everything, which tastes phenomenally. However, um, mm-hmm. it's not the healthiest thing to eat. So I am probably ignorant in saying this, but I would have assumed that black people and the UK might have a different diet um, that would make them, I don't know why I felt like people in the UK, black people in the UK would be like us a little bit healthier. Um, Well, yeah, I don't think so because I kind of think the population still have an origin somewhere. So the Caribbeans are still having their dumplings, their fried chicken, lots of large Mm -hmm. portions of carbohydrates, rice and peas. The Africans Mm -hmm. are still having their ground rice, their pounded yam. So a lot of our diets are quite carbohydrate laden. I think in America, we're probably seeing a more accelerated version of what is what's happening in the UK because we're facing a massive obesity crisis and then all of the diseases and comorbidities are following on from there um i think yes the food that we're eating now definitely people's diets are poor you know there's like supersized portions of everything but the younger population are feeding into that so they may not be eating what their parents are eating but they're going to the chicken shop and getting fried chicken and chips on their way home from school so I think that those dietary problems are universal really we need to kind of because there's nothing wrong with our traditional diets really we need to handle portion control and the more money we have and how we're living and and working and just having food quick people aren't really eating really balanced diets in the Caribbean we may have eaten a lot more vegetables with our yams and things but now they're not so you're just eating the carb fuel load and not eating all of the amazing fruit and vegetables that you get around that like hallelujah yeah when you when you say person uh, excuse me portion control for let's say like uh, an adult an adult male what would be like a portion like a proper portion of let's say just like the the normal good food I'm I'm air quoting good food like are we (laughs) like cutting are we cutting back on carbs or is it like what we read in our health books which is like half of the plate should be the vegetables and then like the carbs should be oh god I don't remember what it is but like the carbs should be the smallest thing on the plate or I was also told like your meat shouldn't be bigger than the palm of your hand Mm-hmm. Or something like that. Yeah, well, the carbohydrates shouldn't be bigger than the palm of your hand because your plate can be any uh, size okay. and people just go out and buy huge, massive plates and then have a mountain of rice on the top. So your carbohydrate should be like palm sized amount of carbs. The vegetables, okay. you can really eat what you want. And as long as you have some good kind of protein, whether that's meat or fish, you want to have 
the meat as lean as you can have it. So, you know, a portion of chicken would be a breast or a leg and a thigh. That's one portion. You only need one portion. Right. Your potato or rice in the palm of your hand and stack it high with vegetables if you want to. That would be a balanced diet. But you, how often do you see people with just a handful of rice? Never. Not rice. I, nope. <laughs> I will say that like what I've learned with portioning comes from me living in China because how they eat in China, they have the dishes on the table and then you have a bowl of rice and then you have to mm-hmm. take the but because you're taking the food from the, the, the I guess, the, the shared plates on the middle of the table, you only eat to the time where you're full. And then when you're full, you, you're done eating because it's not like, you know, back in the day, your mom always telling you, oh, finish your plate or you can't leave the table until you finish all your food. We don't have mm-hmm. that kind of um, they don't have that kind of mentality over there in Asia. They just say, OK, eat what you want after you finish eating, leave the rest. But you see, Paul, things, you know. Previously, people would have sat at the table to eat together and you would have had a shared meal. I remember when our grandma was alive on Sundays, she would cook like a whole big dinner. She'd cook rice and peas and chicken and vegetables and stuff. And she'd cook it all. She had a little hostess trolley, which would keep it warm. And then when everyone was there, you'd sit around the table and you'd eat. So you would only take what you wanted to eat. You wouldn't take any more. So you'd finish your plate and then you may go for seconds because you've taken what you could eat and you know that the dinner has to share amongst everybody. But now as people are busy and the kids are out going to this activity and that, or people are working shifts, people are cooking and they're just filling their plate. And that plate is getting bigger and bigger and they're piling more stuff on because they may not be eating really well throughout the day. And if you don't eat regular meals, by the time it comes to the evening time, you're starving and could eat a person. So you just kind of fill up your plate with everything. Mm, Yeah, that's why I meal prep. So I have like two meals and like two protein shakes. So I like I balance myself out throughout the day just in case. I ain't trying to get big. I'm in my 30s now, so. (laughs) Um, I do think that it does have a lot to do with location and environment as well. Um, Income Mm -hmm. definitely affects someone's ability to um, meal prep or eat healthy. Um, I know a lot of people who um, they only eat maybe once or twice a day and the people who eat like once a day, which, you know, I know there are several reasons why you should not eat once a day, but, um, when they do eat, they just eat one big meal and they feel like, mm-hmm. okay, I just need one big meal because, you know, I skipped breakfast and I'm having like a mix between lunch and dinner and the meal is so large, it'll hold me over until I go to bed. And then, you know, it's breakfast time and they, they're hungry, but you know, they don't have the the income or the funds to purchase or to fix breakfast or anything like that. So they just skip it or they might do like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or something like that. Um, and I do believe, especially in, in, in rural areas where the income isn't very high, you will see a lot of fast food um, places. And what does fast food provide? It's convenient. It also provides large portions for a small amount of money. And it's kind of like if I'm hungry and I have children um, and I don't have the time to cook and I don't have the money, if this place is giving me like this ginormous quart size of rice and just 
you know, some meat or something like that. It's not necessarily healthy, but it's a large amount. So it'll be able to feed my family for like $5.99 plus tax. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But the fast food industry is killing people. You kind of think Absolutely. that those fast food joints that end up in poor areas are just mm-hmm. killing that population of people. Um, you know, I think the children need to, we need to be teaching our children how to cook with what they've got, how to prepare mm-hmm. meals out of, you know, because when you're cooking and the larger amounts of people that you're cooking for, it will work out cheaper than the fast food if you are able to cook, if you're able to understand what you're using you will be able to cook. But if you don't have that knowledge anymore, if that completely gets lost, we're beholden to the fast food people who are pumping us full of stuff that is no good for us at all. And Mm -hmm. then we're ending up, you know, it's a false economy because we're ending up having to look after people's diabetes and their heart problems, which is decreasing their quality of life, decreasing their life expectancy. Absolutely. Um, I absolutely agree that fast food companies are put in rural areas and um, they're there to uh, population control, but that is another subject. Um, But yes, it's full of chemicals and things that are awful for you. And again, I think it's just based off convenience. I also think that it's Um, This may seem negative, but based off of lack of creativity, um, for example, when my mother was little, she told me stories about how um, her family, there was five children and the parents and her parents were working when she got off school and and food wasn't cooked. So she would have to think of what to get because like she she didn't have money to just stop by McDonald's or Wendy's or something like that or get some French fries or something on her way back home. She had to use what was in the house. So she was like, she would use leftover pancakes from breakfast and make um, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich off of pancakes, or she would toast her bread and put, you know, peanut butter on there, those types of things. And And you're right, as far as, you know, people not being able to kind of put things together, because it would cost less money to cook than it would be to eat out. That's why you notice when or people who work, if they eat out all the time instead of meal prepping, they're wasting money rather than, you know, in opposed to meal prepping, you're saving money because just like the amount of money you spend on one meal could be like a package of chicken breasts. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because my meal prep, for example, I, I think on average 10 days, I spend about $90, so about like 60 pounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I meal prep, so I like I know how to portion out my meat. Also, I I eat a lot of vegetables too, because vegetables aren't that expensive. Even if you don't buy the organic ones, you can buy like them big ass. Sorry, cussing them big old bags of spinach. You mm-hmm. know, and when you buy spinach, you have to eat a lot of it because it will go bad quickly. So, um, <laughs> um, so you're right in eating vegetables, and I I think one of the great things about eating vegetables is that you can actually eat a lot more vegetables to get full. So like, I I think that when it comes to eating and, and being healthy and how it affects your overall health, I think it's very much mental, like their mentality or a person's mentality, because, you know, they're, they're thinking 
and again, it's environment and how they were brought up. But you know, I used I I'm thinking of or considering going vegan and looking at a lot of um, videos and suggestions and blogs. They say, hey, you know, you can eat a lot of vegetables, like. If you're not full, it's okay to eat more vegetables because vegetables, like it's good for you, like green leafy, like spinach, um, broccoli. If you're into eating broccoli, I know a lot of people don't like that because they say it's man-made, but you know, it's very much mentality wise. Like if you could change your mentality on it, it would definitely be more productive or more healthy in the long run for you and your family, because then your children are going to mimic or just do what they see or to teach them. Absolutely. 100%. I mean, I've got, that's five. I've got three children and my husband is six foot nine. He's huge. My boys are taller than me. (laughs) They are almost 12 and 14. So we don't eat out very often. It's a treat. We eat out for birthday Mm -hmm celebrations only I think my food shopping bill is probably about 400 or 500 pounds a month to feed five people in a pandemic breakfast lunch and dinner because everybody's at home and that's because we're cooking so we are cooking everything and that will include treats of cakes and things like that but that stretches really far because there's five of us so we can make an economy on that. Imagine, I think if we eat out in a regular kind of restaurant for one meal, that would probably cost us £150. So mm-hmm. that's more than a week and a half's worth of funds for one meal. Exactly. Yeah. I, and I, I think that if people were probably educated, they would realize, because um, it's literally right there, like, you don't need a special pie chart or anything. It's just, it's simple math. It's literally right there. You just list it um, and compare. Um, but again, I think it's just um, the education and the environment in which they grew up in. Because uh, you were speaking about veganism. And I was thinking, mm-hmm. have you seen the documentary, What the Health? It was on Netflix maybe about three or four years ago. It's still probably there. Um, I feel like I may have I, I, I don't think so I think the I know the one that I watched because I watched it with my mother because the the one that I'm about to speak on is what helped my mother become a vegetarian and she is no longer considered diabetic because of it um is um fat sick and nearly dead oh that one's mm-hmm. not as happy <laughs> it's it's not the title is pretty it's supposed to be dynamic and dramatic so it catches you like nearly dead oh my goodness and then you you watch it and you see like this inspirational story of this man who was severely overweight well obese and um he juiced he just juiced for maybe 30 days maybe 30 or 60 days and he lost a significant amount of weight and his health started to improve um dramatically so i've seen that when i've not seen what the health though oh i mean more or less i i mean i try to eat healthy i'm a flexitarian so even though there's some weeks where i'll eat only when i say flexitarian means i eat anything so there's some weeks where i will only eat vegetables for like a week or 10 days there's other times where i'll eat like okay i'll have a steak you know but Mm -hmm. um most of the time speaking, I try to I, I try to have a balanced diet, and I feel like with what the health, 
um, during that period of time because my mom, she suffers from diabetes. My dad suffers from high blood pressure. So me and my brother, we watched this. And I think at mm -hmm. the time, his um his partner she was sick as well so we were like okay let's try to like change up the family diet so i was home for a good five months between my university and starting my first job so i was like okay let me start cooking like i went we went vegan vegetarian for a good month i don't know in the end i mean they didn't really stick to it because they were just like we we need our meat but but mm -hmm. that period of time, i felt like everyone was kind of like on this healthy tip and i noticed a lot of times when it comes to the u.s um i guess the meat industry or food industry, we don't speak a lot on carcinogens. So um, that was a big deal in what the health carcinogens. So in England, I know that a lot of times they don't allow certain food that's allowed in the US, like um, they'll, they'll put like it can cause cancer. Yeah. So in the in England and in the European Union, there are foods that are food substances and e-numbers and colorings and things that are banned for human consumption, which are allowable in America. Um, yeah and what you were saying about you know people being diabetic we know that we're screening people now for being pre-diabetic and I think in America you guys you're always like ahead a little bit in in terms of how you're managing people so we look at HbA1c which is uh, sugar attached to red blood cells and have a measurement for that on how much how your body's handling the sugar. And di diabetics generally have a high HbA1c, but there's a level at which you're pre-diabetic. You're not really quite diabetic yet. So your pancreas is still doing a job, but it's been really damaged by all the sugar. And studies have shown that if you find someone who's pre-diabetic and they radically change their diet and decrease their calories, that you can reverse that process the pancreas is saying i'm getting really tired but you can actually help it get better again by just reversing your eating habits and your exercising habits and that's really what we need to be part of my job is screening people to make sure that i'm getting to them before they become diabetic in that pre-diabetic phase if we see them there we need to be shifting them on they need to be making a change thinking about what they're eating, thinking about lifestyle choices, exercises, so that they don't become diabetic, because that's just, you know, an opener for other problems. And we really need to be thinking Absolutely. about what the long term consequences of our actions and what we're putting into our mouth is doing. Absolutely. Um, food absolutely has a direct connection on ailments in your body. Um, for example, my mother, she was considered diabetic and she was already taking one insulin. And I'm not specifically sure on like the, the types and anything like that. But I know that she was sticking herself every day um, once in the morning. And then it got to the point where her um in this case, you would consider her a general practitioner, was ready to put her on a second insulin um, because mm -hmm. of like her, her sugar levels. Um, she also used to be hypoglycemic as well. And um, again, she watched the, the video, Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead. And she just chose to, you know, what she did, she didn't do it as um radically or at, she didn't go cold turkey she gradually took those meats out of her diet but she did start to like kind of cleanse her palate detox as much as she could by juicing and she just did it for like five days so she might do it for a week and then she would you know go back to eating solid foods and she just 
gradually did it. And when I tell you guys, she is not, she is, they, they took her off of all the insulin. She's not considered diabetic. She's no longer considered, or her, her general practitioner wouldn't consider or classify her as being hypoglycemic. Um, still working on the blood pressure, but you know, it, it, in what she told me is because when she, when she first started insulin, her general practitioner advised her to go to these diabetic meetings or people who have diabetes meetings. And she said that the first thing that they told her is, Hey, don't worry about it. It's not your fault. It's not about your food, you know, like you, you know, and they, they told her, you know, Hey, you know, you can still eat the same things, but you want to incorporate exercise and you want to, you know, maybe modify your diet a little bit. And she thought that it was just interesting because why are you telling me that this has nothing to do with what I'm consuming when, you know, in turn, you're telling me to change my diet? Obviously, it has something to do with what I'm eating. So I'm not sure if it was just that group itself. Um, that was providing that information, but for sure, it's definitely about what you consume. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely about what you consume. I think sometimes the problem that we have in our communities is that they go to groups, I mean, particularly in England, they go to groups that are run by Caucasian people sometimes, and they don't know Mm -hmm. what the diet is of someone who comes from Nigeria. So they can't Ah, really understand when someone's saying, oh, I eat pounded yam, and then I have this and I have that. They don't understand what they're telling them. So they go, okay, you had stew and it had vegetables in it. That's okay. When actually they don't say it was cooked in like pounds and pounds of palm oil and stuff like that. Because obviously you're going to have to control what you eat in order to regulate your blood sugars. There's no two ways about it. You can't carry on with what got you there in the first place. That's a toxic relationship. That is a really good point that you made as far as like the people who run those groups are Caucasian people who do not understand how that food is prepped. So if I tell someone, hey, you know, I had chicken and collard greens and it's like, okay, collard greens are great because like in theory, collard greens are very great vegetable, but how you prepare them is it is what deciphers on whether or not they're healthy or not. So that is a really good point. I'm glad that you you brought that up. All right, thank you. Also, what we'll do is um, I'll I'll put a guideline on the link on the Twitter page. I'll put a guideline for like healthy eating. Oh, like what the health as well as what the health department guidelines are for food consumption in the U.S. Right. Yeah, that was part one of our interview with Dr. Ucka. If you like what you hear, please like, subscribe and follow us on Spotify, Twitter and any other streaming platforms. Have a good one.